Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products or services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into a reality. They have beautifully designed templates, customizable features, and an intuitive point-and-click process to build the website of your dreams. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase. On with the show! Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also proud of you. Yeah, good job, you. You did it. You figured out a way to get to this moment where you've got access to a fancy device that plays podcasts for you and the time to do it. Hell yeah. High five yourself, because as far as society is concerned, you might as well be living under a bridge right now. So like, like really high five yourself. Do it. I'll wait. Just kidding. I won't wait. We got a great episode for you and we got to get to it. It's a great one. Because today on the show, we're talking about how to be a human being. And we're talking about how unhelpful society is when it comes to helping each of us become that human being, right? From education to job hunting to every other step of being a functional person, society just kind of throws us all into a free-for-all, freestyle, figure-it-out palooza. Trademarked. That's a great name for it. I don't know if you remember, you know, if you're an adult listening to this, it might be hard to remember that childhood was a stunningly early in life process of placing massive bets on your future. And don't get me wrong, adulthood isn't easy. Adulthood is a terrifying cycle of taxes and childbirth and interior decorating. But in society, in America and countries like it, We take children, we put them in an education system built for living in the 1800s, and then we say, hey, decide what you're going to do with the rest of your life while a tidal wave of hormones washes over you. As David Wong wrote on our website Cracked in May, of course you don't know what you want to do with your life. He wrote that in his article, Six Facts That Will Clear Up Your Confusing Life, and he addressed that to everybody. Whether you are 13 or 43 or 73, society is the opposite of here to help you. It's expecting you to turn your coal mining experience into a tech job or turn the college degree you planned as a 17-year-old into a lifetime of gainful employment or lead an adult life of innovating, inventing, and redefining the whole economy after training for that by sitting politely and taking careful notes. I'm also thrilled about this episode because I have good news for you. We've got an exciting and funny and enjoyable take on that tough topic. I will be talking about it with Cracked's own Jason Pargin, who writes for the site as David Wong, and also Christy Harrison. They are some of the smartest and funniest people writing about this stuff anywhere. And I think we find a lot of silver linings along the way. And we tend to do, like, goofy voices when we describe life in olden times. So, hey, you know, bonus funny voices. You know, that's fun. Anyway, I'm going to bring you straight to that conversation because society's hanging us all out to dry, and it's time to kick some ass. So, please sit back, and as you sit back, congratulate yourself on how much ass you've kicked in the borderline dystopian circumstance of being alive right now. Anyway, I'm digressing. Open your ears and enjoy my talk with Jason Pargin and Christy Harrison. I'll be back after we wrap that up. Talk to you then.
All right. We are joined on the phone by uh, Jason Pargin, who writes for the site as David Wong. Hello. Hey. And uh, we're also joined by Christy Harrison, who writes for the site as Christy Harrison. Hello. Hi. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for coming on. And uh, among other things uh, that kind of inspired this episode, Jason, you did a column in May called Six Facts That Will Clear Up Your Confusing Life. I read your work whenever it comes up anyway, but especially that title, I was like, I can't wait to find out how I can fix my life. And it turns out it's aimed at teenagers rather than me. So I'm uh, pretty frustrated with that. Uh, but also, I don't think I'd want to be a teenager right now uh, trying to figure out how my life should work. Uh, yeah, although as we're going to find out as this episode goes on, the whole... I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. That is not limited to teenagers. Yeah, there are plenty of people in their 40s in the exact same situation. And the premise of the column was that all of the anxiety and fear you feel when you're in your 20s, when you're in college, when you're a teenager, when you're in that phase where you have friends who seem like they were born to do a job and they've got a career trajectory and you have no idea. Not only is that not weird at all, it's not your fault. And it would be weird if you did know what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. Because this system, in terms of its ability to get you ready for the world and to help you figure out what you want to do, is completely broken. And instead of trying to fix it, we just yell at people and call them lazy and shiftless. Right. And that's a bad way to run society, you're saying? That's a that's a mistake? In my opinion. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> There's one section of it where you talk about uh, the idea that for most of history, like just the entire sweep of civilization, uh, the way we think of jobs now was not really a way that things operated. Uh, well, right. That's because for most of history, I, you know, I, when I say most of it, like there's two ways to think of it. For most of human evolution, the thing you needed to do, you know, we've discussed this on previous podcasts, which now doesn't matter. Those were That was the Jack era that we have now completely expunged from our history. <laughs> like it's going to be a, a Stalin-esque purge of everything that occurred. So as we have never discussed before right. on podcasts... Humans evolution-wise, like the the concept of long-term planning is extremely recent. This is why our brains are so poorly equipped for it. This is why when people try to diet, when people try to come up with a budget, like every decision we make, every weakness we have in terms of like gambling, in terms of you know taking bad loans, not being able to those were things you didn't used to have to worry about. You used to have to get through today or this season this winter you know even as recently as the 1940s or so very few people moved away from their hometown not that many people went to college unless they were you know academics or professionals most people took a job with the family business or whatever one industry was in their town like if it was a coal mining town you were going to be a coal miner pretty much you know that that it was the exception, the person who struck out and went to move to the city and, and pursue their dreams. So the whole concept of you can be anything you want to be is very recent. And the process of training you to do that, like where now college is mandatory, 
is right. extremely recent, as in only going back to the 70s and 80s recent. Yeah. And the concept of, in order to work as a barista, you need a bachelor's degree, is brand new and is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think uh, it goes back to like the early 20th century, it's the, the way that schools were intended, once they got past the one-room schoolhouse, was to get people ready for assimilating into uh, the workforce, which is a really smart move 150 years ago, because schools are structured to make you obey bells and to move your body at a certain time when you hear a bell and to do certain things into working groups. It's a very factory-like structure or a military-like structure, and it was it was very effective in bringing people from all over the world, because you have to think of all the immigrants that were pouring into the United States at that time to speak the same language and to work in the same way and to um, be able to obey orders in the same way. And I think that was a really effective model 150 years ago. Um, And our economy has shifted and we don't know what to do to fix it. We're so entrenched in that model that there hasn't been a lot of innovation in how to address today's economy for for kids. It's still in that factory mold. That historical background does uh, make a lot of things about how school works, especially the early level, how the early levels of school work kind of make sense for me thinking about it. Because it seems like in a lot of, not to be too negative about how school works in general, but there's a lot of teaching of order. Like there's a lot of teaching of just moving as a group and being in rows and all Mm -hmm. following pretty much the same track of things. And it seems like the more things in in the economy fragment and become uh, more creative in a lot of cases, that's not a particularly helpful skill set to be impressing on people. That's interesting. I I just thought of it when you said that because I did teach kindergarten for two years. And the first thing that you teach on day one as fast as you can is how to stand in line and how to respond to commands and how to sit like you you really spend the first two weeks on classroom organization and drilling you know order into the kids before you ever start on all the actual learning stuff and 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 that's I mean you need that to be able to keep the classroom from descending into chaos and I understand how why we do things that way um it's just you start with that you start with order and precision <laughs> lines like we would i would line my kids up and then i would you know pat the ones on the head they were doing a really good job i would come and stand gently next to the ones who are not doing a good job so they would get in line and even as you know gently as you can make it it is a regimented system and you're a good teacher has good lines a bad teacher has chaos and that's kind of where you start from with these five-year-olds or even earlier and the whole thing is built on that it all starts there with our current system yeah and to give the listeners some context this is why christy and i are the the guests on this christy as she mentioned taught and then would wind up homeschooling her children later right christy for a while yeah yep yeah twice yeah (laughs) Back when I had a job that actually contributed to society, um, I spent six years working in a law office where our specialty was special needs children because there's an entire like cottage industry of law 
in students that, that have some sort of special needs, but the school simply has refused to give it to them. And so you often have to bring in an attorney to basically force their, their hand. What I found there, because I had to give myself like a crash course in understanding like, well, what's the dispute here? And what I found shocked me, which was that what we call special needs kids and what certain kids need, like me being totally ignorant of the subject, a special needs kid was either a, a, a kid who had like a very low IQ or they're like in a wheelchair, like, oh, they need a wheelchair ramp, right? Yeah, I hadn't realized it was that broad of a range of kids, like everything from disabilities physically to mentally to anything else, it sounds like. Yeah, and so what I had found was in the majority of cases, the special need they had was simply the fact that they could not learn in this completely arbitrary system they'd set up. Because this system where everyone sits together in rows, a teacher stands up at the front and tells them things out of the book, and then the kids are supposed to take notes on that, that is a model of teaching that is ancient. You know, like Christy mentions, like from the 17th century or whatever, it, it goes back thousands of years because that model of like making the kids take notes, that's from an era when paper was too expensive to give everyone a book. Yeah, right. <laughs> we would frequently have students where their only disability was they would have some sort of a central auditory processing issue where they could not hear a lecture and then take notes fast enough to keep up. They needed someone else to take the notes or they just needed the materials handed to them. If they had it, something they could read, they could memorize, they could take the test, they could function just fine. But this one task of taking notes they couldn't do, and teachers would kick and scream rather than excuse them from that, because after all, note-taking is sacred. This is the way that schooling has been done since for a thousand years. Who are you to challenge this? Never mind that this is a skill that you will never use in your adult life. Well, maybe. I take notes. I have to take notes for everything I learned. So school was perfect for me the way that it was structured because that's exactly how I enjoy learning, listening and taking notes, and then I go back and read it. Exactly. For you, it worked great. And that's the issue is that when you have that classroom of 20 kids sitting in rows, one kid is bored out of his mind because he could be doing work twice as advanced. The kid sitting right next to that kid has a high IQ, but is getting nothing out of it because that kid cannot take notes and has central auditory processing issues and just can't, they can hear, but they can't process it fast enough. The kid sitting next to that kid has some completely unrelated issue, has anxiety or attention issues, but they're all getting the same lesson in the same room and the same structure because that's just how we do it. And then from a from a kid's perspective, um, if you're that kid who cannot function in that format, now multiply that times seven um, because you have seven classes and seven teachers who are on you for not being able to function in, in their classroom. And for the parents, it's the same heartache because it's not just that one class, it's six different subjects that you're expected to master, <laughs> including um, chemistry and, you know, a foreign language and all these, it, it yeah. just compounds. And then uh, multiply that times 12, you know, for every year that you're p 
put in this in this system which is why I homeschooled eventually for a little while because it just the pressure and the heartache and the and it starts so young that you just kind of want to give up on the system it's just not worth it I don't know how you guys felt as kids but I remember being a kid and feeling like something that one adult said felt pretty authoritative like if a grown-up told me something that was true about the world or like maybe I'd look into it later but it felt pretty solid so if an entire set of adult teachers are telling you that you don't know how to learn oh, yeah. or you aren't being a good student or you aren't trying or, you know, just some negative feedback. Like You're like, lazy. Like that. If you get that from a dozen authority figures every weekday for a year, that would have an effect on you. That wouldn't be great. The one that we would hear a lot, and, and this is for all three of my kids, and is um, they're distracted. Lazy was what I got. We got a lot. And we fell for that for a while because we really did think, well, if you just sit down and do the work, if you just do it, then we'll be fine. Because they'd all say, oh, they understand. They're smart. They just are lazy. They don't work and do the work. And then you just multiply that year after year after year and something's going (laughs) to snap eventually. Or what we did was we just said, okay, no, we're going to take our kids side on this and we're not going to have this fight anymore. And for a while, we, we did that. I did homeschool my middle daughter. I wrote a paper, I wrote an article about it. And it was while I was working full time. And it was just this, you know, you could see the future and the defeat in her eyes and the, the conferences over and over again, it was just were weighing down on her. And we just said, oh, we can, we can do it ourselves. We'll figure it out. Turns out she really missed her friends and she ended up going back to school. But she went back to the, the school with this attitude that, first of all, this doesn't matter. She just has to pass. And that's all we're going we're gonna to do. We're going to make sure she passes. And we did work with the school to get a 504 in place. And, you know, I do the conferences. But when I do the conferences, I'm on her side. And the conversation is, what can you do to help her? And that's it. That's the end of it you know, what are your accommodations? And it helped. And she passed. And I think that's something that's good for parents. Um, Getting back to the conversation, though, it's a hard thing as a kid to see the future. Let's say you're in seventh grade, which I think is the hardest grade where your body's just a wreck and your brain is, you know, a mess. And um, that the schoolwork is actually very hard. And you're looking ahead for the next six years of no freedom and never getting away from this, it's hard to talk to that student and say it's going to work out fine because you really are in for a pain. I mean, this is not going to be fun. <laughs> wow, this is a bummer. Well, no, we're going we're <laughs> to get into this because this is the point because I think people blame themselves and I think kids are blamed and they're made to feel like you're a failure. And I wish someone had told me when I was in high school and then later trying to figure out what to do and how to go to college and, and what, you know, what I should study. I wish someone had come to me and said, now, you know, the system is idiotic, right? Like, you know that no one planned this system. It's a total scam. I'm not anti-education, but there's a lot of right. inefficiencies right, and right. things like that. I wish someone had told me that because I would have actually felt better knowing that. For instance, the entire idea of starting school that early in the morning there is tons of research oh, yeah. that teenagers need more sleep. <laughs> there is tons of research that say you should not be getting them up at 7 a.m. and then starting class at 8 a.m. They perform better. They get better grades. They retain better. They retain information better. 
if they're allowed to sleep in. But we are so angrily against anything that makes life easier because it's like, well, those lazy, entitled kids. Like, no, no, no. It it literally will prepare them better for the adult world. It's a biological need. It's like, well, when I was a kid, nobody... We had to get up at four in the morning and feed the the chickens and and brush the the, the cows because cows have to be brushed very <laughs> early in the morning. I, I know, it, listeners. Sometimes I refer to the previous generation as if they grew up in the eighteen hundreds. I but the point is, it it feels like that. Listening to how you know to my father talk about his career path or whatever, or my mother, it was it might as well have been the eighteen hundreds. It is a completely different economy. And we are so bitterly against accommodating kids at all because it just feels better to, like Christy said, to just call them lazy. I was going to say the school day is not tied to the work day. At first I would say, well, you know, your parents got to get to work at eight. So it makes sense to have the kids go to work at eight so that everybody's on the same schedule. But that's not true because kids get out about 315. We have that cushion. We've built in a cushion for kids to not work a full work day. So we could, if somebody was smart, bump the school day up two hours. They get out at the same time as their parents and there's still some kind of schedule cohesion between the parents and the kids. But for whatever reason, we've chosen to let them get to school at the, at the same, and that's the ones that don't go at seven. There are kids that start school at seven. The, the really advanced kids that are taking extra classes will take an extra class at seven in the morning and work till two in the morning with their homework. It's ridiculous. That feeling of, it doesn't feel like school is totally built for me. I would suppose that that applies to even the kids who we think are thriving in school and we think are perfectly calibrated to it. If I can reveal the listeners mm-hmm. that I was a big, big lame-o, uh, I, w- I was an A student for pretty much all of school. But there would be consistent things, uh, for one thing, the way the school day worked, where like I had a high school that was built in the early 70s during an energy crisis. And so it was built with very, very few windows because they thought that would retain more heat. And so that meant that if school started early enough Ew. and then also I had anything after school, there would be a lot of weekdays where I didn't really see sunlight. And that felt wrong. That felt incorrect somehow. That felt uh, like maybe this wasn't optimally built for a person. Uh Uh, But then also you run into things with, like we were talking about note-taking before, and I would find as a student that like, oh, note-taking is very, very helpful for, you know, noting what next tasks I need to do or big picture things. But whenever I'd be taking really intensive notes on the content of something, it felt very pre-internet. It felt like... We talked about parents being like, oh, when I was a kid, I had to do it. So they had to do it. A lot of note taking felt that way or a lot of um, learning how to do computation that a calculator could do. But at the same time, if I, I felt like if I spoke up and said, oh, these things feel maybe unnecessary and maybe we should work on the next things that we need to learn because we live in this day and age, then I'd be lazy, I felt like. So I didn't say at all. I would just very painstakingly learn Stuff that felt like it was for the, you know, early 20th century. My kids can't take notes. That's a, that is an ongoing issue with when I try to help them because they don't take notes in class. And then I'm like, well, show me your notes. I can't help you if I can't see your notes. And they physically are unable to take notes. Like it's just something that they don't understand as a concept. 
um, that could just be them. But I also think it's, you know, an internet thing where you know it's online. You know the information's out there. You don't necessarily need to write it with your hand in a painful <laughs> print scrawl because you never learn It's a cursive. specific skill. It's something that not every kid has. It's not a terribly, uh, it's a skill I never learned. It is. I'm a it fairly is. successful person. It's easily, easy to work around it if you never acquired that skill. In school, it's the only skill. It's the yeah. only skill that matters because your test is going to be based off your notes if it's not neatly in the textbook. And, you know, if they've given you something else that, you know, you, you only heard in class, like they make it sound like that the future world is entirely you being told instructions and then you having to write those instructions down. And then later, yeah, right, and then repeat them back. And it's like, no. And, and in college, like the process of learning things, it felt like it was entirely taking a bunch of information, assigning it in categories, and then memorizing the categories, and then that's it. Yeah. Like, okay, we're going to learn about this artist and which era he worked in. Was he an impressionist or an abstraction, whatever? I don't know any of that. See, I don't even remember those terms from that. And then the, yeah. the test is match up the famous artist with the era, with the name of the era he worked in. Like, getting into what the point of the art was or what was special about it or any of those things wasn't part of it. It was just memorizing terms. You know, this this person belonged to this era or this. And so everything, everything useful I learned, I felt like was outside of the framework of what they were trying to teach me. What did you get out of college that you think was useful? Well, this is something I, I insisted be a part of this episode because each of the three of us wound up in the same place, working for the same company, doing very similar jobs, not not making similar money. I, I make five times as much <laughs> as, as both of you combined. But um, but but we we each took very different paths to to get here. If readers are wondering why I'm so mad at college, it's because I get asked very frequently, like in fan mail and in emails, like probably once every two weeks, somebody asks me, how did you do it? And then how, how do I do it? How do I replicate your success? Because even though, again, it would be very reasonable for someone to say, you, Jason, are just a drain on the system because you're contributing nothing useful to anyone. You're not building anything or growing food. You're really just wasting everyone's time. I still have reached a point where I'm able to do creative things full-time. This is my full-time job. And then I've probably never brought it up on the podcast before, but I'm also a, a best-selling author on the side. I, I write a series of horror novels. There's one coming out this fall. Um, the title is, What the Hell Did I Just Read? So people are like, how do you get here? And my explanation to them is so haphazard and stupid that I think they probably think I'm playing a joke on them. <laughs> because when I was in high school, in my junior year in high school, like I was probably a B-level student. My junior year in high school, I got a D in English class because I couldn't, the, the grammar rules, because again, English class was just, okay, is this the past participle of the right. verb or is this the future perfect tense of the verb? And I couldn't retain that stuff. 
Even then, I, I could structure sentences and stories and, and ideas and explain things in a way that I felt like was better than my teachers, because that's the one thing I could always, I, that's my one life skill, so I'm very proud of it. That you're better and than teachers. And I was teachers. always good at it, but, <laughs> but I felt like my teacher explained this in a way that was terrible. If I'm explaining it to a third party, it's like I could do it better than that. So I was not a spectacular student. My senior year, I got half of my credits by doing an off-site work program at a place that sold office supplies. And I decided that I was going to pursue a career in selling office supplies. <laughs> I, okay. You're I, didn't, laughing I, didn't know this part. Time, I didn't know this part of the story. Keep going. This is good. You're laughing. Yeah, because there was decent money to be made. And I like it, it seemed like something, you know, it's steady work. It's... So I left high school. I went to a community college for two years purely to delay having to enter the adult world for two years because the community college is basically just high school, only uh, they, don't, they don't yell at you as much. It's, it's your first two years of college, but you're still living at home. You know, tuition's pretty cheap. There's no classes that are like focused on your career. There's no internships. Internships, there's no nothing. You're taking basically advanced algebra, botany, all that just you're just building up credits right and then yeah. somewhere while i was there i decided to go ahead and pursue a bachelor's degree in something in order to delay having to go into the adult world for two additional years right at the time i was kind of a news junkie i liked following politics i listened to a lot of talk radio this is why i i have such a background in like voting for republicans and things in my youth because I was really big into that. That was my introduction into those subjects into listening to right wing talk radio. And this was in the Midwest and the heart of Trump country. So, you know, it kind of made sense. I had subscriptions to actual newspapers. I got the Chicago Tribune every day and read it. So I arbitrarily pursued a degree in broadcast journalism. And Jason, what, a uh, what age were you when you were making these decisions? Cause I think one thing we'll be getting to is, uh, we're talking about a lot of different skills that people uh, just need to have in school. And it seems like one of the biggest ones is figuring out your whole life when you're 16 or 17. Uh, right. I, well, right. Because yeah. I would have graduated high school when I was 17 or 18, you know, around then. But, I, you know, I was being pressured to figure this out when I was 17. Neither of my parents had, you know, had gotten degrees. So there was no, like, guidance there. It was just they were pretty much... Yeah, like, like whatever, whatever you want to do. Like, like, for instance, my whole concept of like going into broadcast journalism was not based on knowing anything, even one word of information about what does that job pay? <laughs> what, what, right. what are, what's required? Where do you have to live in order to do right. it? Any, like, what are the hours? What are the benefits like? I didn't have any of that. I just knew that I liked the news. It seemed like, well, that would be a fun job. Like, pursuing news stories and doing that. So that's it. There's some people listening to this saying, well, yeah, but why didn't you jump on the internet and just look up? <laughs> this was 1994. Right. There was no internet. Do kids these days realize this? Like I did not own a computer. I did not own a cell phone. That, that, those were not, that was not a thing. It, like cell phones were something that like stockbrokers had in their limousines. Like, like it was not, right. that was not a thing that people had. So if you didn't know somebody, and, and growing up in this town of 5,000 people in the middle of nowhere, no, I did not have people I could talk to 
about what it's like to work in a, a mid-market or large-market TV station or even what markets mean. So I go to college. Like, I arrive there as because I come in as a junior because I had spent two years in community college and find myself among a bunch of people who know what they're doing with their lives. <laughs> Like some of them, their parents paid for them to be there. Some of them, they've already like worked at a TV station right. for a couple of years. A lot of them were, were transplants from Chicago. They had connections. They, they knew all the lingo. Like it was a shock. And I was so like terrified and so ashamed of myself for reaching at this point, age 20 without having solved my life that now looking back, it's like, well, how could you have? But at the time it was like, oh, this is my fault. I've been screwing around. Like, why was I screwing around all this time? These people are already like 95% of the way to a career. They know they know exactly what station they want to work at, what position they want to have. They know what it pays. They've got friends there. Like, what have I been doing? Because I didn't recognize at the time that the pipeline from getting to raw talent to actual useful career is not a pipeline at all. It's this big, stupid maze. It's this hall of <laughs> mirrors where people basically stumble to the end by accident. Not to bore people with, well, the, the story ends very quickly because basically I got a job right out of college as a producer at a local TV station in the same town where the college was because I didn't know where else to go. I failed at that. I did it for two years, quit. And then just took random low-paying office jobs for eight years before crack tired me. None of them involved writing, recording things, creative decisions, anything remotely close to what I'm doing now. None of them involved writing stories, writing prose, writing articles, anything. It was These were just office jobs. I, re I applied to one of the last jobs I applied to before I got the crack job was at a UPS distribution center to load boxes onto trucks, and I didn't get it. 2007, I got this job because I was writing a website on the side for my own amusement to blow off steam, and because I was friends with the guy that had this job before me, Jay Pinkerton. That's it. He recommended me. That got me an interview. That got me the job. That's why I'm here. Otherwise, I would still be working random office jobs or something. It's amazing. And the connection aspect, I feel like that's a key thing for a lot of people's jobs that especially as a kid you're just not aware of and I think when I was first aware of that connection aspect it was when I was talking to people about colleges like that was one of the big selling points for college in general was that you would just meet people who had the correct connections to set you up into the thing and even as a kid I, I felt like that was a little strange that it was so focused on the connections and not actually on well, you'll gain the skills to do this thing, and then people will want to connect with you. It felt like some of the time it was more of a thing where it was, hey, no, you'll just connect with the people, and then, I don't know, the skills will work out, or the skills aren't important, or it'll just be a thing that happens, you know? I'll tell my story in a second, but one of the things that's apparent that I've that we got heavy into was what you're talking about with creating that path going way, way, way back. Like, my oldest son, we started making him volunteer at the local music festival when he was like in ninth grade and we made him volunteer at the radio station last year and he needs to go do that right now too because he's only got a part-time job and he needs to still continue with this connection so that when by the time he graduated high school his resume is pretty robust in terms like of all the free stuff that he's been doing in the industry in our little town but that's something that had to click for me to know that, well, he's not going to go to college. 
but he still needs to be competitive and we need to get some skill sets on there. And so for each of the kids, I kind of set this agenda for them, which also sucks for them because that's probably not the best way to be a kid. But it's because I hear stories like yours, Jason, and I know that I know that the fields that they're going to go into require more than just walking in with your eyes wide open and willing to learn. You need some more skills and background and connections. And so I'm like the manager of my kids, you know, like the Lindsay Lohan mom, whoever she is. Uh, Dina, I think. Yeah. 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 And, and like making them do open mic nights, not because I need them to be on stage, but because if they're want to be a performer, they got to practice and, you know, they've got to get better at being able to just be comfortable with themselves on stage if they want to do it and stuff like that is a different set of parenting skills that I didn't know existed but I think it's it's the right thing to do I think they won't hate me later when it pays off hopefully hopefully we'll see get back with me in five years well <laughs> you're not making them live your dream it's not like no. you're living vicariously oh, through gosh, your kids no. like, these are things they've expressed interest in yeah i'm really upset about it too because one is a musician one is an actress and one is an artist so i'm pretty mad that none of them want <laughs> to be anything that's going to make any money at any point i'm coming up creatively coming up with ways for them to practice but I would love it if they all wanted to be scientists or something, accountant, something that would, you know, at least give us some kind of hope that there's work out there for them. But I'm working with what they what they've said they want to do. So that's that's all. That's the only thing I'm doing there. But it it takes an imagination to look 10 years ahead of time and say, you're going to need to have this, this, this and this is experience before you get your first job. And let's schedule that into your school year i mean like you do have to be creative about it and i'm not letting them come up with those ideas if they had their way they'd just be kids and enjoy themselves and you know like what you did and what i did um i'm kind of squeezing this stuff in so that they have a little bit of an edge later or they at least have started on their path and you know maybe they can make decisions earlier maybe my middle one you know decides at age 18 she doesn't want to be an actress versus age 25 or something you know what i mean like you just start the path a little bit earlier because they're forced to right they have to because you have to find out what you hate about the job and this is the thing like all of the people in high school who said oh i want to be a veterinarian i want to be an air force pilot i want to be none of them knew what's bad about each of those jobs because every job has that. It has the stuff you just have to tolerate, right? So in my case, I didn't know that part of the issue with journalism is you have to be willing to move. Because when you get promoted, you don't get promoted at that TV station or at that newspaper. You get promoted by moving to a bigger market. In other words, moving to a bigger city. So the primary skill you have to have as a journalist, if your goal is to keep progressing, is a total willingness to move every couple of years anywhere in the country, meaning no connection to your parents, no roots in one city where you've got friends and stuff that you're unwilling to leave behind. Nobody told me that because I was only thinking in terms of what you see in the movies, which is research, writing, talking to people, you know, chasing down the truth, right? The, the core part of the job. So in your case, like 
there's things about being an actress, being a comedian, being a, a musician or working in the music industry that everyone who leaves those industries hates a lot that no one is aware of from the outside. There's things about the auditioning process. There's politics in the way the industry. There's things that it's just not apparent to you until you interact with that industry. You've got to find out, are you willing to tolerate the awful parts of that career? Right. That's the whole thing that kids don't have. Right. Because no one tells you that. You've got to go out and see, you know, there's parts of it that have to be there that you may just find intolerable. Yeah. 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 Uh, I agree. Uh, the thing about moving is universally true. I've found out, like, any tech job, if you want to move up, you move. Unless you're, like, in a city where there's tons of tech jobs. Well, I mean, like, your wife had to move to be able to do her career. The moving part of career paths is not what they teach you. <laughs> like nobody says to you as a kid, by the way, as you move up in your career, you're probably going to be moving across the country like every couple of years. You should just get ready for that. Nobody says that. And with all those things, like Christy, I think your kids are lucky that they have somebody in their life saying, hey, we should put together a structure for being exposed to all these things because your kids certainly aren't the only young people in America who want to be musicians or artists. And there's no system, like you say. When you say, oh, it, there was science or something that was a path they want to tackle, that would be neat. And I, I think it's just because there are some structures already in education and in how we move people into the workforce where there's like a few limited jobs where there's a pretty clear pipeline. And even then, I think it just appears to be more clear than it is. But yeah, I don't know. They're, they're lucky with that. And uh, I don't know how we get more people in front of those things sooner. I mean, there is a path line. There are schools of music. This is something I wanted to touch on. We aggressively are avoiding four-year colleges, specifically because the older two don't want to go. They've said out loud they don't want to go to college, and so we're honoring that. But also because their fields don't require degrees. So Charlie is, my son is a musician. And it, again, this was my idea because he was a, like a 15-year-old kid who can play guitar and wants to work in the music industry, doesn't want to sit at a desk. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, well, what about sound engineering? He's like, yep, that'll work. And so like, he's going to go to a sound engineering school when we can raise the cash to send him so that he's not taking on any debt. He's very compliant right now. If he changes his mind, I think that will be fine. He's just a kid. He doesn't know what he wants to do. He's 17 and he just graduated high school, but he's not going to go to a four-year degree and go to a school of music and take the theory and stuff because it's very clear that that's not a good idea. And then my middle daughter, um, you know, she says she wants to be an actress. She could go to school, and I want her to study acting and take acting classes and develop her craft and be committed to it. But her hard skill that we're hoping will pay the bills is makeup. She wants, she's also interested in makeup, so we're going to send her to a cosmetology school so she can pay some bills while she's trying to be an actress. I mean, that's the plan right now. She's only 16, so we don't know what will happen after that. Now my artist, my third child, she wants to go to Cal Arts, which is like $46,000 a year. Not because, you know, she just picked a college and wants to go to college. She's only iffy on college itself, but because all of the Pixar animators came from Cal Arts and she's very hyper focused on this career path and you know, she just finished 8th grade, but she's got I'm going to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And so we've got like four years to try to help her raise money. So with her, 
I will be bigger on her grades because she's going to need scholarships and I will be more aggressive on her actual transcript because there's no way she's going to be able to go to college without lots of help financially and she needs the, the good grades and a good portfolio to be able to do it. With any other path, I wouldn't necessarily say, yeah, you want to be an artist, you should go to a really expensive school for that. But she did the research and has her plan set out and I'm not going to fight it. But it's hard emotionally to say no to school, to say no to college, especially this year with my son graduating and all his friends are, you know, going off and parents are asking, what are you going to do next? And he got to the point where it's like, I'm going to take a year off and, and save money. But he was answering that, like, literally when I said, what are you going to do this afternoon? And he's like, I'm going to take a year off and <laughs> save money. Like, he's so used to giving that answer. It's a weird answer for people. They don't understand the concept of not going to college. They don't understand the concept of a middle-class kid not going to college. It's unexpected. And I don't know what the word is. It's jarring. I feel like we're pioneers, actually, because... I don't yeah. know anybody else yeah. who's doing what we're doing. Yeah, very soon that's going to have to become the norm. I'm a big believer in the college bubble will collapse. And it is it is a, a bubble. Like the student loan issue is a financial bubble because this is unsustainable. I have that process I described left me with $70,000 in student loan debt and no career to go with it. And this idea that you have to pay basically like a mortgage on a house in order to get an entry-level job in the thing you want to do, that's unsustainable. You know, tuition has skyrocketed at many times the rate of inflation over the last generation, and people are very confused as to why this is happening. This is a, a hot-button issue. It's like, why is college getting so much more expensive? Why are textbooks $200 each? Yeah. And to me, it's very simple. It's because we've set up a society where we have arbitrarily said, you have to have this. It's like charging money for oxygen. What are you gonna what are you gonna do? Just be poor? So when you tell people it's this or poverty, you're basically holding their whole life hostage in exchange for this incredibly expensive, it's not worthless, but it's expensive and inefficient. And it, it's an, an enormous amount of time with very little of it devoted to actually the thing that will help this person be a functional adult and professional. Yeah, I think the things yeah. you learn in college are how to work in groups, how to manage your time, how to write, hopefully. I mean, and who uses that besides us, guys? I mean, <laughs> like, who needs to know how to write essays besides the three of us in this world? Support for today's show comes from our friends at Squarespace. I say square, you say space, square, square. I say square, you say space, square, square. Okay, if you said space with me, they'll be very happy. If you didn't, they'll be very upset. Either way, whatever your next big idea might be, count on Squarespace to help you create an eye-catching online platform that brings it to life. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to look like an expert right from the start, and you can even get a unique domain. Hey, wow, your own website domain, which strengthens your brand and makes it easier for visitors to find you. Their customer support is available at all times for whatever you need, 24-7. Think of them as your very own IT department. And make your next move by starting your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter offer code CRACKED to get 10% off your first purchase just because you're friends with us. Man, I got the Squarespace hookup and you can get it too. Again, enter offer code CRACKED for a 10% off discount at Squarespace. 
Folks, question for you. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Well, finding great talent, that can be tough, man. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. That's less than two. Then, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, they don't depend on candidates finding you. ZipRecruiter finds them, which is why over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Just screen, rate, and manage candidates in one place with their easy-to-use dashboard. And you can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Hey, free. How about that? Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. Well, I would still like to get to Christy, like your process for arriving at this job. Yeah, yeah, I think definitely. people sure. will find that interesting because again, you're, you also have what is a dream job for lots of it's people true. who aspire to write or do comedy or, or whatever, but to have arrived that at age 50. Ah, nice. Um, I started, so I'll start in high school. I, I was active in my high school and like the speech and drama stuff. And so I kind of, I look back and I think I got, uh, most of my writing skills in high school doing debate and writing speeches, which I highly recommend for anybody who's ever going to write anything because you are forced to organize yourself. And that was a good experience. But I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated high school. I just knew I wanted to be middle class because I grew up in a poor household and I knew I wanted to move away and I didn't have any other plans. So I just took on all the loans in the world just to get out. And so I, um, like you, I guess I didn't really have anybody counseling me that maybe I shouldn't be taking out all this money to go to a private school. Uh, so I went to a private Baptist college in Abilene where it was completely different than your experience and my experience. Almost everybody there was there to become a preacher or get married. So it wasn't like I got there and I'm like, ah, oh, these guys are so ahead of me. It was like they were a little bit weird, but fine. I majored, I started with pre-law because I had done speech and I thought, well, I can talk in front of people, so I'll probably be a lawyer. And then I realized I actually don't like school that much, so or not that much school. So I took history. I majored in history just because that's the class that I like the most. Like I didn't even have a career-minded anything going on. I just majored in the classes that I liked the most. And then I got married. And then I got pregnant and then I graduated and I worked office jobs after that because I didn't graduate with a degree that was useful. I had a history degree. I worked at Merrill Lynch. I worked, I somehow ended up at financial institutions doing secretarial work. Three kids in, I realized I don't know what I'm going to do during the summers. I don't want to take my kids to daycare all summer. That sucks. So I went back and got a teacher certificate mainly so that I could be at home with my kids in the summer and after school. Then I got a job. I taught for two years as a kindergarten teacher, and I really liked that. But then my son started kindergarten, and it was very clear from the beginning that the structure of the same kind of work that I was giving my kids and my, because his teacher was my mentor, 
didn't work for him. And so I was sending him homework to my students. He would bring that packet home, the same kind of homework, and it would just reduce him to tears because it was so much work and he hated it. That was the first time we realized that maybe the school stuff was not for us. We moved to Idaho when my husband was recruited by a retailer. And when we got up here, I couldn't find a teaching job. So I went ahead and pulled out him from first grade and I started doing preschool with my middle one and then my youngest you know we started her little pre-preschool and I did that for five years and when I was going out of my mind and needed something else to do besides teaching my kids how to read and I found the craft form and I started like just pitching stuff just you know for something else to do and I think two years into that I was on the one of the first rounds of people who got to start editing. I didn't even have that many pitches, by the way. By the, when, when I got my first editing job, I think I only had five articles on the site, probably the least number of articles anybody's ever had on the site when I was hired. And then, you know, by fifth grade, I was not confident in my son's science education. I didn't think that I was going to be able to do a good job, do right by him in terms of science and math. We loaded them all back up into school. And I started working full-time here. And that's it. That's how I got here. In all seriousness, how many years was it between leaving college and getting the job at, at Cracked? Oh, uh, 98 to uh, 10? Uh, 11. Yeah. Ni- I graduated in 98. About the same for me. That's a really important point I want to drive home. Because I, I we have people show up on the message boards or people just in my life who are like, you know, I'm 25 and I still haven't, you know, gotten to my career. And it's like, man, it's it's different for everybody. But again, I was my high school's class in '93, so it was from '97 to 2007 that I wandered the wilderness before I got my career job. <laughs> ten ten years, ten years for me it was 11 years for you. I guess yeah. it would be easy for someone to think I was like born to do this, but clearly the world disagreed <laughs> because it, it took a long time. For... Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, we were all born before this particular thing was a thing, you know, like we're all, we're all doing right, a medium right. right now that I, I don't know exactly when it was invented, but podcasting, I like, even when I was in college, I, I, I there were a few podcasts on the internet at all, maybe. And we've all now, oh, now we're doing this. Now it's a thing that's going on. And it's it's something that is surprisingly random. And you would think the country would have more of a system to pipeline people into this and that and other professions. It's hard. If our job ended now, I think about this a lot because you have to as a adult with people who depend on you. If this job ended right now, I don't know. I would not be able to replicate it anywhere. I'd go back to the classroom as fast as I could because I don't have the hustle to try to figure out how to do this thing anywhere else. I don't have the imagination to try to figure out how to do this somewhere else. And I think that that's very, very hard for people to understand that adulthood is going to be, at this point, I predict for everyone, a series of jobs and changes. And you have to be so much more flexible than our grandparents and our parents were and you have to learn how to be happy when you don't know what you're doing and when you don't know what you're going to be doing tomorrow and that in itself is a skill that nobody told me I'd have to have how to learn how to be happy when you don't know what's next 
And this is the heart of why we're talking about this, Christy. The, the, what she brought up is, it is my theory that a lot of the anxiety in America that we call economic anxiety, that we call anti-immigrant anxiety or things like that, a lot of the bitterness, a lot of the people, you know, that the people that elected Trump. And yes, this is another Trump episode. You didn't know that. We're like an hour in. <laughs> this was about Trump the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> he was calling from inside the house. Yeah. That you that that you have people that are in stretches of the country where they've seen their jobs shipped to China. They've seen their jobs go away because it's it's an antiquated industry like uh, coal mining or something or farming or or, there, or automation has gotten rid of a job, and we get the or you see a headline every day about a new terrible thing that millennials are doing. These people in their mid to late twenties who are still living at home still don't have jobs. They eat avocado on toast for some reason, which sounds disgusting <laughs> like <monsters>. to me. <laughs> and that all of this, we we target our rage at every possible direction. We get mad at immigrants. We get mad at the Chinese. We get mad at the corporations for moving the jobs. We get mad at the wealthy CEOs for taking all the money. We aim our rage at every direction or or we the people out of work we call them lazy or that they're, you know, they're inner city thugs and they're just they don't have any work ethic. The thing that is the problem is the thing that people should be mad at which is that we have a new economy where you must be flexible. You must be where there's no, there's no such thing as a lifetime employment. You're going to have to change career, careers in midlife. And there is no system whatsoever in place to help us do that. We would prefer to just waste human beings and just tell them, you know what, just go home. We'll send you like a, a check for disability or something. We'll put you on some painkillers like will like if you've if you've do, been doing a job then at age 40 you find yourself not able to do it again due to because you threw your back out or something it's like oh well it, you're just going to sit and rot and die for the rest of your life that as a culture we cannot recognize that human beings are a resource human beings can do amazing things all human beings even terrible human beings you know look look at where i am <laughs> but there has to be a process for teaching people skills and getting them ready to change careers, teaching people to be adaptable and all that. And we would rather just get mad at people. We would rather just yell at millennials instead of saying, okay, what's the issue? Why, why can't they get into a career? What's, what's the barrier between them and having a productive life? It's easier to just feel superior and smug to them than to say, you know what? The pipeline has broken down because people have talents. You know, in what other society, in what other era would this talent have been helpful? But through a series of grossly unlikely coincidences, I happen to have found the one place where this is productive and generates income for other people and provides employment for other people. Well, I'm telling you, there's people out in coal country, there's people out in Appalachia who are part of generational poverty and unemployment who could be doing something. They could be doing something that improves your life and everybody's lives. But as a culture, we don't see that as like an emergency. Like we've got to get the information into these people's brains. 
if people watch John Oliver's show, I don't know when this episode's going to air, so maybe like two episodes old by the time this goes up. But he did an entire episode on coal. And he mm-hmm. like intentionally avoided the, the greenhouse effect and the environmental issues with coal. His whole thing was the coal economy and how there's several key states like Pennsylvania that you have, in order to win, you have to appeal to coal country. And that Donald Trump partially won those states by saying, I'm going to bring back those coal mining jobs, which is a lie. The coal mining jobs have been lost partly because of like coal is unsustainable and probably because of automation. It just doesn't take very many people to mine coal anymore because it's all done with machines. It's too, it's too dangerous to get people in there. The liability costs are too high. So those jobs are never coming back. But there's this dumb dynamic where the Republicans are saying, we're going to magically make it 1890 again and everything's going to be coal we're going to bring back the glory days of when everything was just belching black smoke into the sky. And on the Democrat side, where it's just all, no, we must embrace a future where power comes from wind and solar, which does not help coal country. That, that doesn't help Pennsylvania. Those, those jobs, solar power is not going to be a big deal in Pennsylvania. Neither of them are like, you know what, all you coal miners... I don't care if you're 55 years old. You can learn another job. Right. Let's figure out how to get you into another industry. Yeah. It is hard to imagine how long we live. I don't know how old people are that are listening to this, but I'm 40. My husband is 40. And we have to be planning for the next 40 years. So when he's switching, he's switching careers right now and it's very hard for him to say that he's not too old to switch. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We've got at least 20 more years of hard work to do, probably 30 more years, um, at least 40 more years, if we're lucky, of living. And we can't stop. You have to, you, you have, to have the imagination to see yourself as a very old person. Um, so when you're switching careers, that can hopefully give you the motivation to just do it because it's it's a hard thing to imagine living that long, but people do, and uh, you have to be ready for it. Like we're only halfway through our working careers at this point. Yeah, there's a there's a piece uh, there's a piece Patton Oswalt once wrote online about how yeah, young people should be aware that life is long, and I think the way he phrased it is that unless you're plankton and genes, you have a lot of decades ahead. Which is true of everybody. Like we all, <laughs> we all have a lot of life ahead and a lot of things to roll with and deal with and and things that will just come up in life. My grandparents are uh, still with us uh, on my mom's side, and they were born in the Great Depression. They have stories that I had read in history books only until they told me about like going along train tracks and finding pieces of coal that the trains dropped because that was economically valuable. And now they're living mm-hmm. people with email accounts. You know what I mean? Like it, there's a lot of shifts that are going to happen in any of our lives unless we have a, a terribly short lifespan. And then why worry about it, I guess? Well, you've heard that statistic that like the first person to live to 140 has already been born. Um, yes. Good and Lord, I've never lived that long. <sighs> that sounds awful. <laughs> I've never revealed this, but that, that's actually me. Oh, congratulations. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, I'm going on record as starting an opiate addiction at about 70. Just <laughs> just know that. I'm. I, for, if I'm at 70 and I'm not addicted to opiates, then I'm about to get going because there's no way yeah. I want to live to 100 and not be high. But for me sitting here knowing that I have to plan for the next 88 years of my career, like there's going to be a lot of changes, but here's how stupid the current system is. When I was in college, I knew multiple people, multiple people who had like medical level breakdowns over having to change majors Mm. because they realized (laughs) a year in and you know, $50,000 of debt in, I hate this. You know, I, I this is everything yeah. about this is, is terrible. And I'm realizing again that the aspects of being a nurse or being whatever that I saw on television, that the real job is not any of that stuff. It's, you know, I thought it was helping people. In reality, it's a lot of cleaning up poop or it's a lot of paperwork or that's insane. Because what happens is if you change majors and you've got to add a year or two years to your college career, guess what? Your scholarships run out if you had one. Your financial aid runs out. Yeah. Like there's no help for you at all. You're now taking that on purely as debt. And even in the case of like taking on student loans becomes tricky, at least when I was in school, in terms of, you know, the terms of the loan interest rates when you start paying the bank. Like the moment you start extending your college career, Society cracks the whip like, oh, uh, excuse me, sir, what do you think you're doing? You should, <laughs> when you were supposed to know what you wanted to do with the next 80 years of your life when you started college, not two years. Oh, in. by the way, it's not when you start college. It's when you start high school. You do career counseling your freshman yes. year and they line you up for your high school path because if you want to be competitive you need to be in ap classes and you need to start that at age 14 not you know 17 or 18 and the pressure on high school kids i don't think anybody and like our age appreciates what emotional stress high school kids are under unless you're living it it is insane it is Absolutely unnecessary. I mean, they're and it's all to get into college and nothing else. Like they are working their butts off to get into college, where they may or may not <laughs> find the right path for their careers. I think high school is actually much more intense than college at this point in our education system or whatever. Like I think kids once they get to college, it was it's for like me. You breathe a sigh of relief. Why? It was for you too? Oh yeah. No question. I got a bachelor's degree and my brother went to went to medical school. And so I can specifically remember both of us being under intense high school pressure because that's how you get to the next step. And then once I was in college, it was just, well, you know, work on stuff that'll help you professionally, but grades are, are kind of whatever. And for him, grades were still life and death for another half a decade. It was still every class matters. Every class is make or break in terms of having the future that you've decided. And also, as Jason mentioned, a future you've decided that if you try to switch into a different future, it's going to be a real car crash. It's going to be a real difficult time for you. 
I mean, I kind of don't mind that that's true for medical students. That's one profession where I'm like, okay, yeah, you guys, you should be working really hard. It is life or death for, sure, yeah. <laughs> for <laughs> our healthcare system that you are hitting the books, but <laughs> everybody else, chill out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can find, like, ask anyone who's been a doctor for 10 years to compare what they learned in medical school versus what they needed to know running a private practice or any of those things. Ask any attorney about what law school, law school, you don't learn how to argue in the courtroom. Oh, really? Like, you don't learn <laughs> rhetorical skills. Like, like, it's all this academic stuff about case law stuff. Well, it's like, well, yeah, but once I'm an attorney, I actually can go look that stuff up. You buy subscriptions, you can go look up the case law. You know, so right. it's it's the exact same complaint across the board. It's like, as a doctor, did you have classes on how to communicate with patients? Did you have classes about how to, to talk to patients and about how to deal with them? Because lots of them get out of school not having any interpersonal skills whatsoever, to the point that you have patients who will not seek out care because their doctor is right. a dick. <laughs> and they'll die. You'll have medical students working their way through school, not knowing to what extent they'll need to deal with patients at all. If you're going into pathology where it's mostly lab work, you really don't need to develop a bedside manner for the most part, other than just being able to like deal with coworkers and, and garden variety, you know, human interaction. If you're going to be a pediatrician, you need to be incredible with people and also specifically with children. And there will be people who are in their second or even third year of med school not knowing which path of those two they're going to end up on. Like maybe they need to focus on that intensely. Maybe they and can to get, completely skip it for the most part. To go back to, to high school for just a moment, like this is a crucial point for any young person listening to this, the concept that when Christy and I were in high school, like the internet didn't exist. It, it's going to be the same situation for you. It, like whatever you think you want to do now it's a job that may not exist 20 years from now, and some other much better job might. I graduated in 1993, which to me, that doesn't sound like ancient history. They, like a movie that came out in 1993, I don't, it's not like in black and white. Like it's the same people that are in movies now. It's Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. Like it's those same people. They're all still alive, all right? In 1993, when I graduated, in that high school in a small town, there were no computer classes available, period. Oh, That really? high school wow. did not have a computer lab. In that high school, taking a typing class was optional. I took typing because I was avoiding some other elective, like wood shop or something, that was in the room mostly with girls. Typing is not a class anymore exactly it's not been a class right, for right. my child my children's entire because they come in you know freaking kindergarten knowing how to type it's exactly like a, oh wow again these are kids that are 17 like teaching us okay no no you hold your your fingers on the, the your index fingers on the j and f key no no move it move it over one key you're okay now i want you all to hit the u key no, it's your right hand. Don't reach over with your left hand. Like the very, very basics of what a keyboard is. Like we owned a typewriter, but it didn't come into use very much. Like in, in high school, like they still accepted a lot of reports in longhand. And only in like my senior year did they insist they be typed. So I had to dig out my dad's typewriter and like hunt and peck. That was 1993. 
So <laughs> if you if you fast forward 20 years from now or 24 years, if you want to do the exact math, think about how as fundamental a skill to interfacing with everyday life to the point that your banking, your interaction with your friends, everything is done by typing on a keyboard, going on Facebook, everything. There is some fundamental skill you're going to need 24 years from now that they haven't taught you yet, that no, that it is not common yet. The skill that you need, and Christy said this earlier, the one skill you need going forward is the one thing they don't teach you in school yet, and that's adaptability. Right. And the ability to deal with uncertainty, to deal with an uncertain future, to deal with a change in plans in a way that is not an emotional devastating thing for you. Because people kill themselves over losing their jobs. People kill themselves over seeing their career path get derailed. People get divorced. People who are employed live longer, they're healthier. Like Your entire life is based around that. And so much of it is because two generations ago, you would get a job as a young person and then you had that job for 40 years and then you retired and they paid for your retirement. And that's gone. And like even the language we've used in this episode, like, well, you need to figure out what you're going to do with the next 60 years of your life when you're a teenager. It's like, actually, you need to figure out what you're going to do with the next 10 or so years of your life. But you are going to need to learn at some point that all of the ground is going to shift under your feet, whether it's because of automation or just whatever. That situation is a crisis. And it's in particular a crisis for people or the longer ago their education was, the more of a crisis it is for them. And I'm curious why we, as a, as a society, aren't diving in and putting out the fire. You know what I mean? Like, my, my best working theory is that our economy at least a little bit runs on, uh, you're supposed to be self-reliant. If it's not working for you, that is on some level your fault, and it's somehow something you've brought on yourself. Is that the reason we can kind of let this crisis go, that just at least some of us think that the people falling through the cracks in the net, so to speak, poorly, like it's somehow something they did, and it's something that they brought on themselves. I think it is worth noting that people are attempting to bridge these gaps. There's a lot of talk about charter schools, and you know, it's a political thing, but charter schools exist to address the education issue that Jason was talking about, that some kids' needs are not being met in a traditional classroom. And so people are really attacking the idea, and I don't want to even get into the political stuff, but the idea, just the framework that some kids learn in a different way and there should be, we should be innovative. And so uh, online schools, for example, have hit the ground running. They don't have a good track record from what I've learned, and, and I'm not necessarily a fan of them, but they exist because people recognize that this system is not meeting the needs of the future and we've got to we've got to catch up. We've got to change some things. So same thing with a lot of charter schools. Our charter school has some flaws, but it's kind of cool because it doesn't have bells and it has this big open space with a ton of light. And that sounds like not a big deal, but it's like walking into a building that doesn't feel like a factory. They have no halls. Uh It was designed to 
for kids to work on projects together. So their whole curriculum is project-based. So kids do a lot of work in teams, which a, a lot of people hate because, you know, some kids end up doing all the work, but it mirrors a job for, or, or the workforce a little bit better. They don't have text. I'm not trying to sell anybody on my, on the school. No. They don't have tech textbooks. They all use their laptops. And it sounds built like a professional space. Like it, it's built like... Yeah, it feels like a professional, more like one than... than I mean, there aren't cubicles. I wouldn't say yeah. that. But I do think that if you open your eyes and you look around, there are people and institutions and groups that are rushing to try to bridge the gaps. We were talking about boot camps. You know, my husband's probably going to do a development boot camp versus um, 20 years ago, he would have actually gone back to school. He would have gone back to the a classroom and started from scratch and taken computer science classes from the beginning. And now we're looking at a six-month program where he learns very specific skills to do a very specific kinds of work that only addresses this field. And I do think people are adjusting. It just takes generations to to, to revamp a whole system. And then by the time we do, it's going to be a different system. And it takes time. Well, here's here's the thing. There's a lot of incentives that run the opposite direction. Because like getting public school set up in America was not a neat and simple process. Like in the beginning, a lot of it was done through the church. That's true. Um, That's true. You know, and then it's and then at some point, you know, it's due to, you know, people just needing basic skills that they can function on the farm and later it function in a factory. And so you you know, you have you have schools named after wealthy benefactors, um like Vanderbilt University, because you had wealthy people realizing that oh, we need an educated workforce. Just the public school system in general was like was was controversial because so many people were like, "Why do we need to send my kids to school? How dare you make it against the law for my kids to stay home and be farmers just like me?" And it took decades to get to that point, just where open you know one room classrooms existed. There is an irrational thing we do as human beings that it objectively makes the entire society better if everyone has an education everyone has a useful skill you know because obviously if there's a choice between a person living on welfare their whole life or becoming a scientist and inventing a cure for cancer like objectively it's better if that person gets a job and and you know and cures cancer if you ask us as a society to pay for that person on welfare's education so they can grow up and get a good paying job curing cancer. We don't want to do it with the public schools. Think about what happened when they tried to desegregate those schools. It is objectively better for society as a whole. If black populations are having jobs, being productive, making money, paying taxes instead of getting tax money, being law abiding citizens instead of being criminals. who we have to throw in jail and then pay to be to, put in jail like it is objectively mathematically better for us like like greedy angry white people in the south it's better for them if those black people have educations and get good jobs even then (laughs) the moment that my tax dollars are paying for this black person to get an education i'll be damned if he wants an education he can go start his own school like like the moment we're helping people who aren't a part of our group and 
I'm telling you, since this is an episode about <laughs> Trump, if you go to a bunch of left-wingers and suggest we need to pour a bunch of money into coal country to get those people help to, you know, to, to help the opioid crisis, to get them education, it's like, well, they voted for Trump. Why should we have to help them? Like, they, you know, they made their bed. They can lie in it. Like, the lack of sympathy for someone who's not in our group is a universal thing. Even though in the long run, it would help us. In the long run, having a thriving coal country that's with a booming economy helps L.A. It helps nationwide. It helps the tax base. It helps everything looks better. And it's the same thing like when you hear people complain about like lazy immigrants. These people coming in from Mexico and they soak up our welfare and these second generation, you know, they're, yeah, they're citizens, but, you know, they, it's because they were born here. And they, they will complain all day long about how they commit crimes, they, they collect benefits, and they, you know, suck up our public education system. If those Mexican immigrants suddenly became high achievers who were dominating, getting the top grades, winning valedictorian every year, flooding colleges, flooding post-graduate you know, programs to get you know, law degrees and medical degrees, if those young Mexican kids were suddenly competing you know, were high achievers that were competing with those white students, you think their attitude toward them would improve? Where now you're having to fight over the good jobs with them? Hell no. Because people can't stop seeing it as me versus you. It makes it particularly strange that when people are in politics and in the public sphere super concerned with immigrants as a, oh, immigrants are the ones coming for our jobs and co they're coming to the country to take everything over. For one thing, statistically, immigrants are a, a wonderful group in many ways in terms of incarceration, education, just lots of other demographic factors. They're a net positive, but also in terms of people coming into the country to get jobs, a lot of them are people on something like an H-1B visa where they're a highly skilled worker coming here to do the work and uh, there's a piece in the Washington Post about how the title of it is, If Trump Restricts Skilled Immigrants, the U.S. Could Lose Jobs to Other Countries. And they talked to a professor at UCLA named Margaret Peters, who's doing a study that finds that when the U.S. prevents highly skilled tech workers from coming here, tech companies just kind of set up shop where those workers are. Or they'll just have them work remotely Absolutely. because... Why wouldn't you? It's incredibly easy to just work with them over email and Slack or just set up an office in India or wherever they'd like to do that. It, there's not really a, any reason to block out highly motivated people who want to come and work here specifically. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a perfect example of how people can't quite wrap their minds around how the world has changed. And this is across any, all ideologies. It's the same. The, the questions people ask or the concerns people have, it reflects that they're still thinking of a world from the 1980s, which makes sense because politicians are very old. A lot of CEOs are very old. You know, a lot of CEOs still have the attitude of like, well, if you're working from home, then you know, how do we know you're doing anything? How do we know you're not, you don't just have, have porn open <laughs> another browser tab. And it's like, you evaluate the results the same as with any other employee. You evaluate the deadlines. If the person is not a self-starter, you'll find out very quickly. And you supervise them. If they can't do it, they can't do it. But the idea that, no, I need them all in the same room and in a cubicle. And we supply the chairs in the office and, and all that. It's like, yeah, because they can't stand the idea of like somebody sitting there in their pajamas 
and the TV is on and like their dog is sitting in their lap and they're doing work for your company at the same time. It's like, well, that's shameful. You should have to put on a suit and tie to come work the call center where no one can see you. You should. That's crazy. It's like technology has changed everything. You're not appreciating that a lot of the dumb barriers you're imposing on people is effectively a superstition or whatever word you would use for some antiquated thing that people insist on because they no longer can think of a reason for it, but it's just the way it's always been done. This is why I have faith in the future. I have faith that eventually, yes, people in coal country or pick your depressed area of the country, that's just the one that gets a lot of press coverage these days because of the election, but those people could all have jobs for a company in LA or in Canada or in China or in whatever. Like the fact that you can instantly communicate, the fact that everything you could do in an office, you can do from home. Even if you insist on face to face meetings, we can freaking set up a camera and do it. If you need to see my facial expression <laughs> for some reason, <laughs> yes, we'll set up a thing so you can see the annoyed look on my face as you tell me things. <laughs> If it's not enough to hear it in my voice, we'll figure it out. The technology exists. And it's crazy because even with immigrants in general, there's an editorial in the New York Times by a columnist named Brett Stevens. And the, the title is Only Mass Deportation Can Save America, which is actually it's a satirical gag title because then his whole piece is about how immigrants are incarcerated less than Americans. Uh, he They quotes a study that says, Illegal immigrants are incarcerated almost half as much as people who are already here and citizens. The vast majority of people who made the Intel Science Talent Search, which is a big science award for kids, the vast majority of them are children of immigrants. Immigrants start businesses about twice as often as people who are already here. Like there's so many reasons to bring those people into the country and then at the same time, work on the troubles of people who are already here by fixing how the job market works in the first place. Like if we have a perception that new people coming in are the whole problem, then we're just blocking out future great citizens while still having the exact same issues that we already have. Yeah, the, the joke was the mass, the mass deportation is everyone right. but immigrants. Yeah, we deport all the citizens. What's to deport yeah. the white people was the joke he, <laughs> the joke he was making. Another thing you'd brought up in the notes, Alex, was like there's like a doctor and a doctor and a nurse shortage in America, and, yes. and those are both good examples because there's actually lots of industries. That, like the issue is not that there's no jobs. Like there's lots of industries that are starving for for skilled labor. The Association of American Medical Colleges says that by 2025 we're going to be short 41,000 doctors if things go well. Like if things get worse, it'll be a lot more. And that H-1B visa I mentioned before, that is often used to temporarily bring in a doctor in particular to a rural part of America, because that's where it's the hardest to find, especially specialists, but also just general practice doctors. And if we're doing things that let us bring in people like that, we tangibly help ourselves. And all we need to do is look at data and think about it and, and approach this from a perspective where the crisis isn't new people coming into the country. The crisis isn't millennials buying avocado toast. You alluded to that editorial before, but that if people don't know that bounced around the internet, that 
someone was arguing that millennials should stop buying avocado toast so they can buy houses. Um, there's a price difference there. Those things cost different amounts of money. But what we need to do is match people who are here and people who aren't here with the correct professions and not be mad at everyone for struggling in a system where we're all just kind of freestyling it. We're all just sort of improvising and trying to figure out what'll work best as technology changes everything like it always has. For example, where industries like coal mining and manufacturing are losing jobs, industries that are booming, I mentioned nursing, but anything that's like home health care, anything that's care of the elderly, they're desperately short of people. And those are can be decent paying jobs depending on what skill set you bring, but things like physical therapy, things like that. But if you're if you're asking the question, well, why all of those unemployed coal miners in Pennsylvania and, and Virginia and elsewhere, why don't they just go to school, get a two year that two year program to become nurses? Can either of you tell me why they don't there's a specific reason why they don't do it? The finances of it, I would think. Nope. They can't move? Nope. Uh, let me think. Yeah. It's because that's it's because that's women's work. Oh no! <laughs> it's because that industry that industry so? is ninety percent women, ten percent men, and they will openly say it in surveys. They will openly state it, and the really? women the women in the region in surveys will say they would not respect a man who took a job as a nurse because that's a girl's job. I bring this up. Wow. This what? fits with this fits with this podcast because that is something where. That superstition, like that old belief system, instead of being adaptable, you're adhering to this thing where, no, coal is a manly job. I will only take another equally manly job because I'm a man and my identity is as a coal miner. You're going to have to drop that. Just as right. Christy is you know, saying, look, if I lost this job, I'd probably just go back into teaching. Like She's willing to let go of her ego if she has to and say, look, you know, maybe I will not like be the lead writer on, on a sitcom instead. Like Maybe I'll just <laughs> I'll go back and take some other. Like, it's okay. You, know, you have to be flexible. But in a world where, by God, nursing used to be a girl's job. And, you know, when someone dresses up as a nurse for Halloween, they're dressing up in like a sexy, like slutty nurse outfit. There's, it's not like a, <laughs> they can't wrap their heads around that enough to say, you know what, you could make as much money as you were making before. You know, you're, it's not the That's hours they're scared of. It's not the labor. It's the reputation. And it's the fact that society. So it's the same deal. It's being willing to say, you know what, I spent my life building up my identity as A, but A doesn't exist anymore, you know? And so just as in the past, a lot of vocations like pirate is not, you know, (laughs) it's, you know, cowboy, you don't see a lot of that, not a lot of ninjas anymore. (laughs) Milkmen, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Vikings. If we were going to, as like a parting shot, give advice to people, Again, I hesitate to to do this because it's as there's a, a Bo Burnham bit where he says, like, I you shouldn't take my advice because it's the equivalent of like a lottery winner saying, well, just sell your house and buy a bunch of lottery tickets. It's I'm right. I'm proof that it works. <laughs> He's like this. You know, it, it was an <laughs> unlikely thing. But I will say this, that, you know, like I, I had two years working in, in my chosen field and then left and then had eight more years of trying to find something. During that whole time, I was always on a payroll. And like when I got this job, I, I, I had to quit two jobs because I, I was working, you know, two jobs and then writing books in my spare time and maintaining the website in my spare time. 
I never went the path of like, you know what? I'm going to go live in my van and then I will either become a successful writer or I will drink myself to death. Like <laughs> I was writing comedy in my spare time, writing a horror novel in my spare time, you know, doing all of these things. But I also was working at a law office. I was working at a health insurance office. I was working, you know, I was just doing, you know, I was taking freelance work where I could. Like I, I always had was on a payroll somewhere. And I always told people that like, you want to be a musician, that's great. You want to be a poet. Like I would never tell someone not to pursue that dream because what kind of a hypocrite would I be? Look at what I do for a living now. But while I was out there pursuing that, I, I did always have another, and, and it ate up a lot of my hours and a lot of my brain power, but it also was a kind of a freedom because I didn't have to take right. bad writing jobs. I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't homeless. I wasn't put into a position where I had to do things out of starvation. I, I was, I was making an income. And I guess that would be my advice is that I know that lots of the people listening to this, they already, you know, they're driving for Uber or they're, they're you know, they've already got a crappy job. It's like, that's your advice. Take a crappy job instead of the thing I want to do. Like, wow, you're a genius. But I, I, I know, I know people who kind of, who kind of, crap on that and kind of are acting like no you got to strike out and go out to live your life and go go you know if you've got to die on the in the gutter pursuing your dream of being an actress then you die that's it and i like seeing motivational posters like that it's like i I gotta say i'm not a fan of that i i don't i think it's you will learn more because not one minute of that work time was really wasted I was learning that whole time how to deal yeah. with people, how to do get projects done on deadline, how to manage my time, how to manage my health when it was difficult to eat right and things like that. Like it, it, it all taught me things that I use today. And I think, and I think the education system doesn't, at least for me, like I remember having my first guidance counselor session in high school. And I think the first question was, what do you want to study in college? We weren't really exposed to a world that, is the world and is the world even more now where you're going to be doing some things that pay the bills. And that's going to be part of building a life that you're excited about and happy about. And it's even more and more and more going to be the way things are. And it's okay to never be passionate about anything, by the way. Like to just yeah. be the person who takes a job and then has fun hobbies at the end of the day or you know, or doesn't take a job and raises kids. And, you know, like there's a million ways to be happy. It doesn't have to be this fulfilling, world-changing career that you can brag about, you know, to your friends. It can be anything that, you know, helps you sleep at night. That's so positive. This is good. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Folks, that is our Cracked Podcast episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin and Christy Harrison for joining me on that one. Idaho time zones are fuzzy, but I think we had three time zones worth of guests on one show, and I think we had a lovely time. Anyway, before anybody jumps in and corrects me on how Idaho time zones work, let's dive right into footnotes. We are linking off to a lot of great Cracked stuff on these issues and more things you might like about coal, doctors, robots, and other crucial national resources. 
We're also unbelievably excited about our next new podcast. And when I say new podcast, I mean a whole new show. It is called Cracked Gets Personal. It's hosted by our own Robert Evans and Comedy Zone Brandon Johnson. You know Brandon from Harmontown, NTSFSDSUV. That's one show title if you don't know that show. It's very funny. You also know him from Rick and Morty. And Brandon and Robert are hosting Cracked Gets Personal. Uh, the show is like one of our personal experience articles. If it was also a good documentary and a great comedy show, all rolled into one. That show is launching Wednesday, August 16th on Earwolf and on Cracked. Be sure to subscribe to it so you'll get every episode of season one of that show as the episodes come out. Our next live episode is this Saturday. I'm so excited. Already ironing my shirts for it. It's at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles, August 12th. And our topic is, what is the best video game universe to live in? Michael Swaim and Adam Ganser from Cracked are joining Brody Reed, Monica Scott, and Mike Drucker from The Wider World of Comedy for our talk about which game you would want to live in. I feel like Pong will lose. I don't know who will win. Go to UCB Sunset's website to get tickets. We'll have a link off to that. The shows tend to sell out, but hopefully when this comes out, you can still get a seat. And then next month, September, we are flying this show to New York City. We're performing with two dozen of our favorite other podcasts at the Now Hear This Festival. That is September 8th through 10th at the Javits Center in Manhattan. And you can see all the shows on it with a single festival pass. You can get that pass at nowhearthisfest.com. And we have a promo code for it, which is promo code cracked. Gets you 20 bucks off the pass. But as I've said on past episodes, that code runs out eventually once enough people use it. So don't miss out. Get in there and see us for cheap. If you love this in-studio episode of the Cracked Podcast, hey, that's great. Uh, you know, hey, great to hear it. If you hated this episode, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, society's free enterprise system for likes, shares, retweets, snapsy pins, and total social domination. Today's episode was engineered by Chris Souza and co-produced by Brett Rader. Find Brett at Brett, R-A-D-E-R, on Twitter, and find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com, and I'll be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. How about that? Talk to you then. James Bonding is back. I'm Matt Gorley. And I'm Matt Myra. We are officially back with weekly episodes of the James Bonding podcast exclusively on Earwolf. We'll be tackling all of the movies, official and unofficial, and a whole lot in between. That's right. You might want us to talk about James Bond Jr. Stop asking. We might. We won't. But we'll talk about a lot of other things. Why should you trust us? Because we're James Bond lovers, not experts. Subscribe now. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.